This morning, uh, message title is 16%. Who are you going to listen to? The 16% will make sense to you momentarily. How many of you realize that words are powerful? Words are very powerful. The spoken word is a very powerful tool that can either be used by the enemy or used by God in your life. Proverbs 18.21 gives us this principle. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. In other words, those who harness the power of this understanding will eat of the fruits that come from the power of your words. You realize that what we hear affects us greatly. What we hear affects us greatly. In fact, the Bible teaches us that faith comes by seeing, doesn't it? No. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We grossly underestimate the sense of hearing because our culture and our society has overplayed the visual. You see, hearing is vital. Paul tells us that he was once caught up into the third heaven. Now understand, he was caught up into the third heaven. He didn't know whether he was in his body or out of the body, but he had this encounter with God that caused him to be caught up into the third heaven, into the, into the throne place of where God is. And he came back and he didn't say what he saw affected him. It said what he heard affected him. That's an interesting nuance in that passage. In fact, what he heard, he could not come back and express in his native language. Hearing is what changes us, not what we see. But yet so much of our culture leverages the eye gate. Much more so in human history than it ever has been. It's played to our eyes, but it diminishes our hearing. You can study a lot of different researchers are making the case that hearing is actually more important than seeing. That which sense would you, most of us choose to keep? Seeing over hearing. But actually hearing can be more vital than seeing. Hearing is incredibly important. Hebrews 11.1 1 teaches us that now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of what? Things not seen. That faith itself is not even hinged on the eye gate, it is hinged on the ear gate. But how much of our faith depends on what we see versus what we hear? This is an important truth I want you to kind of settle in because we are a culture and a people that tend to walk way more by sight than by sound. And this is counter to what the Bible teaches us as it relates to words and the power of hearing. Perhaps if you're a married couple in the room, you've been exposed to the book by Gary Chapman entitled The Five Love Languages. Here's what I'm talking about. The Five Love Languages. If you haven't read that yet, you ought to read it. It will change your life. It sure helped my marriage tremendously. And one of the five love languages, as you know, is called words of what? Affirmation. Words of affirmation are vital to the psyche, the soul, the mentality of us, that there's something in us that stars and craves words of affirmation. 
We see the effects in people's lives who were raised in homes by moms and dads and parents who rarely or if ever said, I love you or I am proud of you. We see the effects on our life when we live without these words of affirmation. I was blessed to have a home where my mom and dad continually showered me with that affirmation. I love you. I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. It's one of the greatest gifts you will ever give your children is that continual affirmation of your love and that you're proud of them. There's something in them that needs that. Hear me, mom and dad. I don't care how old your kids get. It never gets old hearing, I love you, son. I'm proud of you. I love you, son. I'm proud of you. Reinforce that truth into their hearing. There's a deep-seated craving in each one of us for verbal affirmation. There's a story in the Bible. We don't have time to get into the weeds on it. But it's a story of a man by the name of Jacob. Remember Jacob? Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and a twin brother by the name of Esau. Jacob and his mom, Rebekah, worked out a trick to obtain the father's blessing. Remember the story, right? They worked out a trick to obtain the father's blessing because the father's blessing ultimately belonged to Esau, who was the firstborn. But yet Rebekah wanted this for her favorite, which was Jacob, talking about a dysfunctional family. There was a dysfunctional family situation going on there. So they worked out a plot which ultimately deceived their ailing father who was blind to give the blessing to Jacob when he thought he was giving it to Esau. You remember the story perhaps. Esau finds out that his brother stole this powerful verbal affirmation that would come from his father. We don't get that in the culture that we currently live in. But in this culture, this was um, intrinsically important to everything, this verbal affirmation and blessing from the father. Esau comes in and he finds out that his father gave the blessing to Jacob. Now it's insightful when you see the response Esau has upon finding out that he did not get this verbal affirmation that he needed and ultimately was entitled to him. Genesis 27, 34 gives Esau's response. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me also, my father. Bless me. Now in Hebrew, there's a verb here that's used for cried. But then we see in Hebrew, there's an adverb. Notice what an adverb does. An adjective describes a noun. An adverb describes a verb. There's a particular adverb in Hebrew used to accentuate and amplify this cry. It's the word me'od. And, it, and this one simple word requires the English to render, in order to render more accurate translation, to capture the intensity of the cry that's being uttered by Esau. You see the English words, exceedingly, great, bitter. That's what this word means. This, was, this wasn't just like a Esau having a pity party. This was some void deep in the recesses of his soul that he cried out for, that he so longingly desired, now he wasn't going to get. You feel the intensity of that. You see, in all of our hearts, there's this intense screaming for the Father's blessing. 
You may not know it's there, but I assure you it is there and it is exerting its influence upon you every single day of your life and all the relationships around you. Now later we will see a similar moment with Jacob. He began to recognize that the blessing and the affirmation he had obtained through trickery did not satisfy or fulfill that craving. You see, many of us will try to get that satisfied through another venue, another person, another relationship, and it will bring a momentary satisfaction, but in the end it will always leave you wanting, desperately wanting. And Jacob found his place of wanting. We find him by the river. He was getting ready to face off with his sin. He was getting ready to face his brother Esau, whom he tricked so long ago. He sent his family across the river, and there he is in Genesis 32. And what does he do? He gets in an unprecedented wrestling match with God himself. You may remember the conversation. He's holding on and God's saying, let go of me, Jacob. You see, God really likes determination. God likes persistency in his kids. He doesn't just hand out candy the first time somebody asks. God loves determination. Jacob is hanging on. God says, let go. And Jacob's response in Genesis 32, he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I was, God, I'm not going to let go of this till I get what I so desperately need. And because of his determination, history irrevocably changed for the life of Jacob. God changed his name to Israel. He had 12 sons, and you could say the rest is history because of Jacob's determination. You see, this God-shaped void we so often refer to in each of our heart. We all say there's a God-shaped void in every human being ever born. I believe that God-shaped void is really simply this, a cry out for the Father's blessing. That's the void that exists with all of us. This affirmation that comes from the Heavenly Father, that's what will ultimately fill this void. Romans 8, 14 gives us this beautiful vocabulary. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We just sung that. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That God affirming this in all of us by the Holy Spirit. We would later read in Romans chapter 5 that through the Holy Spirit, the love of God has been poured into our hearts, bringing the Father's love in us. That love of affirmation rooting us into our new identity in Christ. This is critical for us. And this is not just a one-time affirmation at salvation, but is an ongoing affirming purpose of God in our life, that we are his sons. Do you get that? It's not like a one-time one deal. You sign, seal, deliver, and you put it on the shelf. We ongoingly need this affirmation. As we'll talk on Wednesday night, we realize that part of the continuation of being filled with the Holy Spirit has to do with this process of being more filled with his love and affirming us as his sons and daughters. It's not just about speaking in tongues and moving in the gifts, God forbid. It's about understanding who we are in Christ who we are as his sons and his daughters. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, one of the primary purposes. Now, the key, I want you to get this, that God uses 
others as his mouthpiece. Do you believe that? Do you think God uses people as his mouthpiece? We said words are pretty important, aren't they? God uses other people. People say all the time, well, I'm waiting on God to speak to me. Well, he probably has. He's just not listening to the vessels he's using. God uses people. We got 66 books called the Bible with a prime example of how God uses people to speak to us and speak truth to us. And words that come through him, through others, deeply and profoundly affect and shape our lives. Listen to Isaiah 55, 11, as God speaks of his word. It is the same with my word. I send it out, and it always produces fruit. I will accomplish all I want it to do, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. So when God's word comes through the pages of the Bible or through human lips, when God's behind it, it will accomplish what God purposes it to accomplish. So therefore, it's reasonable to assume then who we open our ear gate to will affect us greatly. Who we allow to speak into our life affects us tremendously because we're looking for this, Isaiah 30, 21. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. You see, we're all looking and seeking God's will for our life. And it's going to come through your hearing, not through your seeing. We are taught that we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But many of us live lives that are solely walking in the visual. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll go on YouTube and I'll do a little surfing and I'll watch these like um, um, illusionists. Isn't it amazing how quickly your eyes can be deceived? So quickly, so easily, and you're mystified at what they're doing because your eyes can be tricked much more quickly than your ears can be twigged. God so designed our physical ears in such a way to detect nuances in acoustical ways that's really more attuned than light waves that go into our optical senses. Our ears are incredible. And there's a spiritual parallel because we have spiritual ears and we're all looking for God to speak to us from behind us in our ears and say, this is the way, walk in it. And God will use people to help direct your life. You realize that, right? Nobody lives on an island. We're all connected and God uses people. Now, we get to our primary text of scripture. Congratulations, that was just the introduction. Let me set this passage up for you very quickly. It should be familiar to most of us. There's been a great deliverance from the land of Egypt. Millions have come out, led by a man by the name of Moses. He has led them out. Where is he leading them to? The promised land. They journey for many days. They come to the edge of the promised land. And Moses says, all right, we're going we're gonna to spy this place out. We're going to check out this new home where you have called all of us millions to. So he sends out 12 spies, 12 leaders from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Not random people, but 12 respected, validated leaders. And he sends them out and they begin to spy out the land, checking out the territory for 40 days. After 40 days, the 12 spies return to have a little convo with Moses to let them know what they found out. Numbers chapter 13 begins to give us their accounting and Moses' reaction to that. I'm going to have you stand as I read this because I don't want you to go to sleep. This will help, your, this will help you stay awake. 
Movement is good. Numbers 13, 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell on the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell on the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell on the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are all well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves, that's so important, isn't it? We seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So let's talk about statistics for a second. My youngest son is taking statistics in college. He was showing me some of his work, and I, and I grimaced. It's like, oh, my gosh, that looks difficult. Not good at statistics, but let me show you a slide that will demonstrate a little bit of statistics. It's going to show you a list of 12 men, all right? 12 men, the names of the spies who Moses sent into Egypt, 12 of them. You'll notice there are two underscored. The two that brought back the good report, the 10 that brought back not so good report. 84%, everybody say 84%, 84. brought back a bad report. Everybody say 16%. 16%. Only 16% brought back the God report. You got that? Now let me give you the big idea here. Ready? On the next slide. The big idea. 84% of the people in your life will not encourage you to take the risk by pursuing the things of God in your life. You get that? Do we have a slide for that? 84% of the people in your life will not encourage you to take the risk by pursuing the things of God in your life. Only 16% will. Do you get that? That's a truth you need to get a hold of. Only 16% will. This is critical for us to get, for Moses failed to make the right choice on who he listened to, and the consequences were severe. They were severe. Now, this passage is incredibly, deeply, profoundly personal to me because back in October, myself and Jeff caught a vision of a promised land, right? We've God put in our hearts a vision for this place where he was leading us. He showed us something. He showed us something about where he desired this body to go and what it represented to the overall body of Christ, to see the unity in the spirit in the bond of peace. 
And then we came back, right, from this experience with God saying, this is where God has called us. Are there giants? Yeah, there are giants, but this is where God has called us to go. We came back. And guess what? We're all here today, amen? We are moving. We are moving because I can tell you, I can tell you quickly that we chose to listen to the 16% and not the 84%. Listen, that's not, that's not faulting the 84%. It's just a reality. It's just a reality. And we are here today moving in the vision that God has given us. Who you choose to listen to, who we choose to open our ear gate to, will define who you are and what you will become. Make no mistake about it. And you control this little gate over your ears. Who you choose to listen to is vitally important. So this morning, I want to give you some characteristics, if you will, of the 84% and some characteristics of the 16% so we then can have discernment on who we choose to listen to and how. So let me just move through this real quickly. Characteristics of the 84%. Are you ready for this? Who are the 84? They're the 10 spies that you don't even know their names. They had profound influence. First of all, they will be leaders. This is scary. They will be leaders. Remember, these 10 spies were not just random people. They were recognized and validated leaders, respected in their tribes. These are people in your life that you trust. These are people in your life that have actually validated you before. These are people in your life that their opinions matter. And perhaps you have given yourself to their counsel in the past, and it has been good counsel on many occasions. But yet in your particular moment in history, that's not the people you need to be listening to. Don't just automatically make an assumption because they are a leader, that they are speaking God's message for you. Let me illustrate it for you this way. If you walk into a doctor... Just because he has a white coat on and it has MD behind his name and he wants to cut open your spine. Don't just say, well, this is the right plan. Go ahead, cut me open. What do you do? <laughs> I think I'm going to get a second opinion or maybe a third opinion because this doesn't seem to be validating what I, what's in my heart. Never make an assumption that just because they have validated you and that they know you and that you have a degree of trust in them, that they are echoing God's plan for your life. Oh, my goodness. How many poor decisions have we made by following people blindly? They will be leaders. These 10 guys were leaders, not just leaders, handpicked leaders by Moses. Number two. Not only leaders, but they will be loud. They will be loud. They are leaders and they are loud. Because there are more of them, they will always be the loudest voice in your ear. They'll always be the loudest voice in our ears. That 84%, just by virtue of quantity, will always be louder than the 16%. And what is our natural tendency to do? I was going to illustrate this for you, but then I thought not because... Mark's got a pacemaker. I didn't want to scare him. I thought about having somebody standing in the back at this moment and just all of a sudden randomly blow a trumpet really loud. It'd scare everybody in this place, wouldn't it? I thought not after I thought about it. I'll just tell you about the illustration. 
every single one of us at that moment in time would cease listening to my voice and you would turn to look at that voice. The natural tendency for us in our humanity and our flesh is to be drawn toward the loudest noise out there. Isn't it? Isn't that true? We're always drawn to the loudest noise out there. Therefore, it takes a great deal of intentionality to filter out the loud noise and focus in on the quieter noise. And so often God speaks in a quieter noise, doesn't he? Elijah learned this lesson when it was revealed to him in 1 Kings that the Lord's voice is often a what? Still quiet voice or a a low whisper. They will be leaders and they will be loud. Everybody got that? They'll be loud, overwhelmingly loud sometimes. In your face kind of loud. Note that, leaders and loud. Lastly, note this, they will have leverage. They will have leverage. You know what leverage means, don't you? They got influence. They got leverage over people. Because of their position, they will have influence and leverage over other people. You get that? And therefore, it can spread really fast. You see, these 10 leaders had that level of leverage and influence over other people. And guess what? It quickly began to spread this bad report like an insidious cancer through the ranks of Israel. It began to flow its way through. We see this in Numbers 14, 1 and 2 in the next chapter says, then all the congregation, everybody say all the congregation. All. Oh my gosh, a lot of them probably. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. Do you see that? All the congregation, all the people of Israel. How many people are we talking about? Millions. Ten brought back a bad report, and somehow it infested everybody. It spread like wildfire, doesn't it? Isn't it true that bad news spreads? Boy, bad news rides on the back of gossip so quickly, doesn't it? Where there's gossip, you can always expect bad news to be in tow. That's why bad news sells. That's why we watch Fox News and CNN and all these things, because we're just, we're just hanging on the bad news. God forbid if they share something new, then we tune it out for a few minutes and go back for another Coke or a piece of sweet tea. Oh, they're sharing how some, you know, fireman rescued a little dog out of the river. Well, I can put that on Paul. So I'm going to get back to see some more calamity. <laughs> That's how it is, news. The marketing of news is built on negative reports. And it spreads and it sells and it's wonderful because we thrive in bad news. God forgive us. You see, these people have leverage, and it spread throughout the whole congregation. And they began to chant, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Oh, my goodness, Moses is having a bad day. I mean, talking about the, the, the mounting pressure of this 84% upon Moses, compounded annually, amateurized over 30 years. I'm talking 40 years in this case. Pressure, pressure, pressure. There was a season in um, our life when um, after I got saved, I began to take a lot of mission trips to Brazil. It really changed my life going on short-term missions. And, and I would spend every summer there for several years. Um, I was going there with an evangelist that was from Brazil. And I kind of became like his um, son in the ministry. He was definitely raising me up to, to do the work of the ministry there in 
Brazil because it's his, um, his family, his sons had another plan for their life. So he began to develop a plan for my life. And I was excited about that. I love Brazil. And when I was there for the last time, I met this Brazilian girl by the name of Clagey. And I fell in lust. I didn't fall in love. I fell in lust, basically. She was a beautiful Brazilian. I could see my whole life in front of me. Now, I'm going to marry her. I'm going to stay in Brazil. I'm never going to come back. And this evangelist who had a plan for my life loved the fact that now I had met a Brazilian. So it was just all fitting in, you know, hand in glove. God was, God was all over it, right? But there's one little thing that happened, unsuspecting to him and me, on that same trip to Brazil, somebody I had never met was a part of this trip that came down on one of the teens while I was there, was named Michelle Graham. She came down. And we met on that trip. Nothing happened in Brazil because, again, I was, had fallen in lust with this Brazilian girl, right? Thank God nothing happened, obviously, but you get my tongue in cheek. It wasn't true love. It was something else going on there that wasn't healthy. So I got on the plane to come back from Brazil. I cried the entire way. Mom and Dad picked me up at the airport. I was 17 years old. I was leaving my beautiful, clagey Brazilian girl behind. I was torn up. Torn up, I cried for weeks. Who's been there? I've cried for weeks, devastated by leaving my, my young Amazon woman behind. <laughs> so my dad took some initiative here, and he actually invited Michelle to attend our church. And some Bible studies were, were attending. And so she begins kind of hanging around us at the time, and all of a sudden something begins to, begins to develop. And um, she begins to fall in love with me. No, I think I, I began to see something in, in her, and I realized, oh, my goodness, God, you were, you were really up to something here. And I say all that to bring you to a very important point. Because then I began to share with this particular man of God in my life who had just enormous influence. I mean, he was my mentor. He was someone that I followed. I, I mean, I literally idolized this guy. And he began to tell me there's no way that she is from God. She is a distraction for the plan of God in your life. Now, that doesn't make him demonic. That doesn't make it. That makes him human, right? But he was a leader. He was a leader. He had great loudness, if you will, in my life, because I only listened to him. And he had a tremendous amount of leverage. He knew a lot of people that I associated with. So it did not take long for almost every significant relationship in my life was pressuring me not to go that direction. Only basically... Four, five people gave us a positive thumbs up. My mom, my dad, her mom, her dad, and grandparents. That was it. Right? And 80% of them were not even spiritual leaders. But they were given a thumbs up to it. Every other spiritual leader, every person in my life that had enormous influence that my eye gate was opened up to was saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Well, guess what? We did it. <laughs> But I mean, it ripped and it shredded and it pulled me away from that relationship, away from Brazil, because God, that was not God's plan. God wanted me over here. God used her to help pull me away from this so I could go to that. You see how important these decisions are? The incredible amount of pressure for me to conform to what he thought I should do would have changed everything in my life. Who we open our ear gate to is profoundly important. Be careful. They will be leaders. They will be loud. They will have leverage. But just because they qualify each of those categories does not mean they're the voice of God in your life. You got to be careful. You got to watch it. Now, let's look at the characteristics of the 16%. The 
the characteristics of the 16%. This makes sense, the first one juxtaposed from the other one. Number one, there's only a few. There's only a few. When it's all said and done, in my experiences, I've walked with God, there are really only a few people God is going to use to profoundly speak to you. And it's probably not going to be the same people your entire life. Don't just think you've got a handful of people that are going to be with you the whole No, God moves people in, God moves people out. But at any given point in your life, there will only be a few people that God is using as an ambassador to you and speaking words to you that are from Him. If you're looking to everybody, if you're looking to a consensus for everybody you trust in your life, you're going to be a double-minded man, unstable in all of your ways, being tossed and fro in the ocean of life and never get to any destination. You'll never get there. You may get to heaven, but you'll never fulfill and finish the race that God has before you. Because God's got a destination. God's got a journey. Actually, God has several destinations. And he will guide you through people he'll bring into your life and they'll speak to you words that will shape and train you. And if you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, it will bear witness with what God's already told you inside. I knew I loved her. God made that very clear to me, but the influence of others was so strong, it almost knocked me the other direction. There's only a few people. And in this situation, it was only my parents and her parents and grandparents. And that was it. And that one decision that were speaking what God desired for my life. I'm so thankful we listened. Only a few. Number two, full of faith. Full of faith. One of the inspirational things about Caleb and Joshua, they were people who were full of faith. Now, to give you a quote, it's worth writing down. I think it's on the screen. Faith doesn't ignore what you see. It just doesn't allow it to change what you believe. Faith doesn't ignore what you see. It just doesn't allow it to change what you believe. See, Joshua and Caleb didn't come back with some pie in the sky and say, oh, there's a bunch of pansies over there. We'll take them easy. They acknowledged the fact, oh, my gosh, there's some giants. There's some Jebusites. There's some Nephilim over there, Justin. There's some serious issues going on in this land. But they didn't let what they see affect what they had heard God say. You see, we've got to be driven not by what we see, but what we what? Hear. It never changed what they believed. The people that God will bring into your life will be people that are driven by faith, not by sight. And they'll believe for the purposes of God in your life, even when it doesn't make any natural sense. I can tell you when Jeff and I started this whole process, it didn't make any sense. Illogical. Some would say stupidity. Some did. Some did. A lot did. And, and they posted everywhere. Right? But you know what? At some point in time, that's not to invalidate the 10. It's just saying, Lo, what did God, what are you really saying? Tune into those people to guide. They must be full of faith to catch the dream that God has placed in your heart. And there's a lot that wants to stifle the dream of God inside of you and keep you on the ocean. Never stretching forward toward the prize and arriving and finishing the race and being told well done by your Savior. Faith doesn't ignore what you see. It just doesn't allow it to change what you believe. Those in your life will always acknowledge the challenges. you got to prepare for the challenges, don't you? you got to be ready for the challenges. But it should never affect what you believe to be true, that our faith is anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a faith that doesn't disappoint. It's anchored behind the veil. 
in Jesus. And number three, and finally, only a few of them, they're full of faith, and they're, they're, they're for you. They're actually for you. You know, I found out something to be true. Not everybody's for me. Listen, when you're born with a pattern of an Ahab spirit, if you don't know who Ahab is, check him out in your Bible. You know, this people-pleasing personality who's easily influenced by people. You need to find out if you live long enough, not everybody's truly for you, but they actually are for themselves, but they're going to use you to attain what they want for themselves. Oh, my goodness. And if you're an Ahab, there's a, 10 Jezebels for one Ahab. They're all out there, man. Wherever you go, they're going to they're gonna seek you out and they're going to find you. Some of you are wondering, who's Ahab and Jezebel? Google them, check them out. It's a great enlightening story, right? <laughs> they're actually for you. They have your best interest at heart. I go back and reference the story of Brazil and all that. At that moment, in that decision, the only people that truly had our best interest at heart were my parents and her parents. Isn't that true as parents? Don't you genuinely and authentically really want what's best for your children? I mean, it's just it's a, such a pure thing, isn't it? One of the most pure things you will ever negotiate in your life is the motive you have for your children. You know, all of our righteousness as filthy rags, but perhaps the least filthy rag is the motive we have for our own children. It's the purest thing that we have. And in that big decision, whom I'm going to marry, could only be entrusted by mom and dad. Oh, for those of you who aren't married yet, let me just take a moment and get up in your grill. All right? If mom and dad have reservations about your desired husband or desired wife, you really ought to give some consideration to that. You really ought to sit down and listen. And yet not get all high and mighty and pious. Well, I'm going to make, I don't know. You better listen. Because there are some people that really care about you and their motives are purer than any other motive. They may actually have some wisdom for you. I won't charge you for that. <laughs> they are for you. Amen. They are for you. They're not selfishly motivated. At the end of the day, the Brazilian evangelist that I referred to, he loved God, powerful man of God. I don't want to throw him under the bus, but in this situation, he had a selfish motivation. He had already planned my life out for me, just didn't talk to God about it. We've all made decisions like that, haven't we? It says in Numbers 14, 24, it says that Caleb had a different spirit. There was something else that was operating in him. Why is it different? Because it's out of the norm. Why is it out of the norm? Because only 16% will have that different spirit. 84% won't. That's the common spirit. The common spirit will be those who are giving you bad advice, who are pushing you the other direction. That's the norm. What's out of the norm, the lower percentage, is the Caleb, a different spirit. Let the worship team begin to make, migrate their way up. A couple questions for you. Who, who, are the 16% in your life right now? Who are the Joshua and the Caleb's you need to be tuning into? Because I'll guarantee you they're in your life right now. But perhaps even more important than that question, who are the 84%? Because there's more of them, they're easier to pick out in the crowd, aren't they? 
Who are the ones that are there right now that when you're around them, they may mean well. They may be like Job's friend. They may be sitting down there with you. They may be proven friends. But yet in this instance, in this time in your life, they are not giving you what you need. They are not the voice of God for you. And they're trying to get you off course. Who are they? How much energy and time are you devoting to the 84%? Because they clamor for your ear. They send emails. They call. They drop by for unexpected visits. They come by for expected visits. They're there. They're always there. Bruce Wilkinson wrote a book. If you haven't read it, it's called The Dream Giver. Anybody heard of that book? It's called The Dream Giver. I really encourage you to read. It's a great read. And he talks about this young guy. It's an allegory, the first half of the book. And it talks about how God gave this young man a dream. And he's, and he's, and he's trying to leave the land of ordinary, the land of familiar, and to move forward. And he encounters border bullies. Border bullies. See, that's who the 84% really are. They're border bullies. They're close to you. They live close to home, but yet they're the bullies. They're the ones that's going to know you really don't need to go. And they have a litany of reasons. Canaanites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Hivites. They list them out, and they're all probably genuine, authentic reasons. And they intimidate you back. You're right. I better not, I better not risk it. That's who they are. They clamor for your ear. You know, it's interesting if you know your Bibles at all, though. Out of that 12, the only names we remember are the Joshua and Caleb's. The other names you didn't even recognize, did you? In time, they're the only people in your life that will champion and affirm God's voice. They will be for you God's voice that says, this is the way, walk in it. They'll come behind you. They won't get in front of you. They'll come behind you because they support you, genuinely and authentically. And their God's voice says, this is the way, walk in it. And they will direct you and they will help you. I remember 16, when I was 16 years old, there was a guy that led me to the Lord. His name was Sam Venable. Much like my parents, he was really somebody God used in my life. That was the voice of God as a young man. I still can take you to the day. He was a Joshua and a Caleb for me. I was over at his house. I had my white truck that mom and dad got me for my 16th birthday. And I was over at his house and he was helping me detail it. Get it all washed up. And I'll never forget because Sam was always one of these guys that would get behind me and say, this is what God's got for you, son. What God's got for you. And those are people that you recognize because when they speak to you, it taps something really deep in you. It touches a, a desire that God put there. God, when Paul came back from the third heaven, he said it was inexpressible. Something you can't even express because it's so raw, it's so primal, if you will, to your spiritual DNA that you can't even articulate what it is. But yet when you hear Joshua and Caleb's voice, it touches that and it begins to rattle. And Sam was a guy in my life that would tell me that I'll never forget. I was washing my car and he came up to me and he said, didn't even know what he said, he said, Dusty, he said, you're going to do great things for God. You're going to do great things for God. 
And you know, it's funny, that's not trying to beef me up or push me up in the way, but something in that 16-year-old kid latched onto that and believed it. And it began to define my life in such a way that would affect every other decision after it. Because I began to discern from that moment in time, this is God, this is not God, this is God, this is not God. Michelle's God, that clergy wasn't God, you know. <laughs> God began to define that for us. So let me just encourage us. You got an ear gate. It's an important gate. Who are you gonna listen to? And another thought too, just as an addendum, who are you for other people? Who are you? Do you fall in the 84% category? Or are you part of the 16%? What are you doing for other people? How are you letting God use you? It's a, it's a thought, isn't it? You know, the few, the proud, not the Marines, but the few, the proud, the Joshua and Caleb's. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I would like my life to be defined by, I would like somebody, some kid at 15 years old, when I'm long dead, that I'm a name that they remember because I was a Joshua and Caleb to them. In a moment when they needed it, in a moment when they needed someone to come up behind them and say, this is God's got a plan for you, son and daughter. Endure it, stand firm, move forward, hold fast. I want to be in that category, don't you? So you need to ask yourself that question. It's easy to be part of the crowd, isn't it? But to be of a different spirit like Caleb was, that's who I want to be, man. That's who I want to be. I want to walk with that. And you know what? When you're like Caleb and when you're 80 years old, you're taking mountains still. That's what Joshua and Caleb's do. That's what Joshua and Caleb's do. Amen?